Hello, and welcome to the Career Builders Podcast. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Lisa Plain. And I'm Stacey Polak. And we are joined today by an amazing guest. This is our second anniversary episode, episode 102. And we always try and do this up in a special way. We are joined by an amazing guest, Dory Clark, who has an amazing book called The Long Game. And that's what we're going to talk about in a moment. Dory helps individuals and companies get their best ideas heard in a crowded, noisy world. She's been named one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50 and was honored as the number one communication coach in the world at the Marshall Goldsmith Coaching Awards. She's a keynote speaker and teaches for Duke University's Fuqua School of Business and Columbia Business School. She's the author of The Long Game, Entrepreneurial You, which was named one of Forbes' top five business books of the year, as well as Reinventing You and Stand Out, which was named the number one leadership book of the year by Inc. Magazine. A former presidential campaign spokeswoman, Clark has been described by the New York Times as an expert at self-reinvention and helping others make changes in their lives. This is a great, great guest already for the show. She's a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review and consults and speaks for clients such as Google, Yale University, and the World Bank, a graduate of Harvard Divinity School, a producer of multiple Grammy award-winning jazz albums, and a Broadway investor. Dory's done it all, and she joins us from New York City. Dory Clark, welcome to the Career Builders Podcast. Oh my goodness, Mike. Thank you, Lisa, Stacy. Good to be here with you guys. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Yeah, we are pumped, and we are excited to talk about this really great book that came out just in September of this year. I'm curious to know, you've obviously had a really interesting career to date. What else should someone know about you in terms of how you've arrived at this point in your career? Oh man, I think the the most salient thing is that I did not have a specific plan for getting here. I built my career on the back of being forced to reinvent myself after a series of uh, gatekeepers rejected me for things. And so that spawned my first book, Reinventing You, and it created uh, the philosophy and the methodology that I, I use today. So I am someone who has tried to walk the talk because I had a vision for my career. It did not go the way I planned, which I think probably happens to a lot of folks. And I have tried to systematize that process so that it becomes easier for people to reinvent themselves and for people hopefully to be able to reach the goals that they want. Amazing. And I feel like that's so relevant right now in the world that we're living in. So many people are having to reinvent themselves in so many different ways. So it's very exciting. And, um, you know, your book is about the long game. I'm curious to know, when was the first time that you noticed that the long came had a positive impact on your life? Well, as I, I, I love that question, I think, you know, certainly growing up, many of us are taught because we, we have to be taught. It's definitely not uh, human nature to delay gratification in terms of things like, you know, doing well in school and, you know, do your homework instead of, uh, you know, play, you know, playing outside or what, you know, whatever the thing is. But as an adult, I can say that for me, a very strategic bet that I did place about a decade ago was, um, and it felt very high risk to me at, at the time, but I 
I calculated it out. And for me, it was this. I knew that after I started my business, where I, I do marketing strategy, consulting, and executive coaching, I knew that there was a certain audience of people that I was reaching, and they were connections that I had, people that I knew from my time working in politics or my time working in journalism. And that was great. They were cool people, but none of them had high-powered corporate jobs. And therefore, they did not have access to a lot of budgets. And I, so I was doing a lot of work for not very much revenue. And I realized that if I was going to be successful long-term in having a business, I needed to find a way to level up the client base that I was working with so that I could put myself in a more premium position. And so I made a, a strategic gambit that the way to do that was building my brand reputation through content creation. I knew that if I was relying on referrals to try to get where I was going to get, it would take me a long time. It would probably take me forever because people know people like themselves. So I needed to do something to disrupt it. And so in around 2011, 2012, I very deliberately cut out the bottom portion of the work that I was doing. And it resulted in a fairly significant income drop. Uh, and the reason I did it was I wanted to invest that time instead in content creation and just writing and getting my name out there so that I could bring in and attract to me a different kind of client. And that, that hypothesis has borne out. Um, it was something that felt you know, kind of risky and kind of stressful at the time, but it was my version of playing the long game so that I could build the kind of business I wanted for the long term. Very cool. You say it in such an amazingly understandable and coherent way, and it seems so obvious, perhaps in hindsight, but when we talk about the idea of the long game being thinking strategically, placing these big bets that won't necessarily pay off until who knows when, it's just an amazing example of your own story relating back to the book. So I just appreciate the explanation because I don't think a lot of people make those kinds of bets. And, and obviously maybe that that's what the book's trying to prompt. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Mike. I, I appreciate it. I, I think that's right. I, I think one of the things I really tried to do with a long game was not just, I wanted to lay out a framework but I didn't want to just lay out a framework because I, I think we as humans often learn best by stories and by examples. And so I really tried to seek out examples of professionals who had employed these strategies in their own lives. Sometimes it was me, sometimes it was other people, but you need to give people a, a frame of reference uh, so that they can see what, what might work for them. Sometimes it's literally doing the same thing, but I think more often, especially because circumstances change over time, it's understanding metaphorically the kind of thought process someone uses or the lens that they're using to make choices and then being able to apply that back to ourselves. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. On that same lens, a lot of career advice you see these days is purely tactical. Why do you think it's especially important to think both strategically and tactically in the environment that we're currently in with the pandemic? I'm going to answer this question two ways. So the first way, tactical is not necessarily synonymous with short-term thinking, but I just want to clarify, writing my book, uh, so the subtitle is How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World, it's not meant to diss short-term thinking because I do think there's a place for it. 
when, I don't know, there's a pandemic, you know, when there's a crisis, short-term thinking is great. That's what you need. You need to react. You need to pivot. You need to adapt. Um, that is That is necessary and good. But I think it's also true that you can't operate forever with short-term thinking. There has to be a balance. There has to be a recalibration. And so, um, but when it comes to, to tactics, strat strategy and tactics go hand in hand. It's like, you know, it's like sales and marketing or something. I mean, you, you could kind of get away with doing all of one, but like, it's very, very onerous. Mostly you need them to work in concert together. And so if we're thinking of tactics as the method through which you are implementing your strategy, then you know, it becomes clear how, how essential it is. I think the key is that ideally you want to be operating such that the strategy stays the same unless, unless there's a compelling reason to change it. But ideally, over time for a fairly consistent basis, you're executing on the same strategy. But the tactics are what can change. And, and those are what we need to hold lightly. It's really interesting. Earlier today, my husband and I saw an ad for this pet care company that's coming out of the pandemic. And he was like, I wish that we had thought of this, you know, last when the pandemic started, because that's something that's really going to be necessary as people start going back to work. So it's just the strategies and the tactics and the short-term and long-term thinking, as you said, it, it all comes into play. And I think it's all important. It's just how you apply it at different times. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, totally. That's very cool. You talked about a concept in the book that I found super, super exciting when we think about people who are developing their careers and maybe feel stuck. Uh, you called it optimizing for interesting and the idea that, um, a lot of the time by default, people are optimizing for money or they're trying to optimize for meaning as you called it and not really knowing where to get started. Could you take us on a bit of a dive as far as what you mean by optimizing for interesting? I definitely can. So the way that I came across this concept a number of years ago, I was making a documentary film and it was it was a you know small movie it was an environmental documentary about this woman who was in her 80s at the time she's still alive she's in her 90s now and back in the 1960s she was a young housewife in a small town in massachusetts and it happened that she lived by one of the most polluted rivers in america and she decided to do something about it and so she successfully led the cleanup effort around uh, the nashua river and anyway, uh, a colleague and I made this documentary film about her called The Work of a Thousand. But as we were interviewing uh, the woman, Marion Stoddart, we were asking her all kinds of questions about different facets of her life and her philosophy and how she got to be the way she was. And she told a story about the time she was going off to college. And it was literally like the send off at the door. It's like her mother's last words to her as she's heading out the door to college. And her mother advised her, if you have a choice of what to do, always pick the more interesting option. And I, I loved that because I felt like it was so crystallizing. You know, I mean, the truth is sometimes we don't have a choice of what to do. We just, we just have to do the thing. But if you do have a choice, why would you not pick the more interesting option? I think we, you know, we all understand intellectually that oftentimes people do go astray when they're chasing money. But I think what is less understood, but, but important as well, is that 
we sometimes go astray on the on the quest for passion as well because you know i mean it's not that there's something wrong with following your passion if you have one but for a lot of people they don't know what it is or they're unsure about it and the idea which i think is so prevalent in our culture that oh well you what you don't know what your passion is well my god you'll have to figure out what your passion is and then there's this idea that like oh wow i can't do anything i can't even take any steps until i figure out what my passion is and you just sort of sit there it's like you're waiting for the apple to fall on your head you know what is my passion what is my passion and people end up paralyzed that way for years and i really want to break us out of it because you know I, you know, who knows, who knows what your passion is. You may, you may never find a passion or you might have a lot of passions. Um, it's hard, hard to say, and I don't think there's one path, but everyone has things that they're interested in and it's a lower bar. And I think it's a better way to get started. I love it. And, and uh, yeah, you've made me think of this new term, like passion shaming, which I totally, now that I'm like verbalizing it, I've seen it. And maybe this is a really nice way of introducing a great counter to that mindset that people feel like they have to have something figured out that's really big and grandiose for them. But I appreciate that sometimes to get moving, we have to start by taking smaller steps. Um, I find that really helpful. On the topic of passion and experimenting, um, I think a lot of people struggle with not knowing what they're interested in because they're just so afraid to experiment with things. If you get out of school and you think that your first job you get has to be like the forever thing. So you just become like so paralyzed to do anything, which it's not a very helpful way to be. And I love in your book, you talk about testing out concepts and ideas in smaller ways before investing. Um, and then that way, if it doesn't work out, it's not a failure, it's an experiment. Uh, so do you have any advice on like ways people can experiment and also maybe experiments that you've had in your life and what they've taught you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a concept that I talk about in the long game as well, kind of a, a compliment to what you're discussing is 20% time, which is most famously associated with Google and their policies where they encourage, or at least allow uh, their employees to take up to 20% of their time to work on projects that are outside the scope of their regular job, just kind of experimental projects that they think might be beneficial to Google and which presumably are interesting to them as well. And I was captivated with that idea as soon as I heard it. And I actually am a believer that we should all be doing this, whether, whether we work for Google or not, whether we're self-employed or not. Uh, I think that we need to find ways to come up with our own 20% time or our own 20% projects in our life, because it's part of what keeps us fresh. It's part of what, you know, because it is interesting to us. Um, it's, it's a fun thing that we can do that also can enable us to learn new skills or tap into surprising new things. And so as one example, I mean, in my last book, Entrepreneurial You, I profile a guy named Lenny Achan. And he very much did this on his own time. He was a nurse at a hospital. He got really into uh, smartphones. And in particular, when apps came out about a decade ago, he, you know, he loved apps. He thought, oh, this is so fantastic. And so he figured out how to create apps. You know, he did not become a coder, but you know, he came up with the idea for some apps and he commissioned them to be done. And he actually got a couple of apps built and put them up on the, the iTunes store. 
And, you know, this is a pretty cool side project. And it's not that he made gobs of money from doing it. He made a little bit of money. But what became really interesting was his boss found out about it. And at first, Lenny was worried. He thought, oh, no, am I somehow going to get in trouble for, for, you know, for doing this? But instead, the boss realized, oh, this is a guy that is literally using his own time to go in this direction and to professionally develop himself. And he said, you know, that's, that's a sign of the kind of passion that's useful. And so he offered Lenny the job to be this, the director of social media for the hospital that he worked at, which, you know, was completely outside of his, his purview and his training, but he managed to get this cool job. And it ultimately was, uh, was promoted to be the head of communications for the entire hospital system as a result of this side project he did. Uh, so the 20% time can really pay off. In my case, uh, I've spent the past five years working on uh, learning to become a musical theater lyricist. And so I've now written a complete musical. I'm working on you know a bunch of different stuff uh, coming up about a month from now from when we're talking. I have a 10-minute uh, musical that's going to be premiering at Symphony Space in New York. So, uh, you know, just seeing where it goes. I love that. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, I guess that's the that last part of your bio. That is that you know everything we talked about, jazz, Broadway. Is that kind of the twenty percent that just? It sounds like has a very. It's in your bio. It sounds like it has a very clear and defined place in your life. Well, you got to keep yourself interesting, Mike. Right? <laughs> it's I'm I'm not a fan of being too unidimensional. I feel like it's if you if you are, it's boring for you and it's boring for other people. Uh, one of the best things we can do in terms of building a network uh, and just frankly not being bored with ourselves is to create other other things, other worlds that we're part of because it gives other people a hook in. You know, if you become so monochromatic that the only people that you can talk to are other people in your field. And everybody else is like, wow, I don't even know what to talk to this guy about. Uh, it's, not, it's not very helpful. But if you have one or two things that are just kind of different, outside the norm, um, it's, it's an additional hook that people can connect to and a bridge to other people and types of people. Makes so much sense. And as someone in sales, I'm always looking for hooks on people. and totally mind blown on that. It's so helpful. Neat. Uh, I wanted to bring up another one of the ideas that you wrote about in the book. This feels very pertinent to me even right now, the idea of being in execution mode, quote unquote execution mode. And just we get into the situation where we go from one thing to the next, the calendar is always full. And you talked about sort of maybe the antidote to that, but why do people get stuck in execution mode, in your opinion? I think, I think there's a couple of things going on. Sometimes um, getting stuck in execution mode may be a form, this is not all the cases, certainly, but sometimes, it's worth pointing out, it may be a form of avoidance in the sense that it is often easier to just keep doing the thing you're doing as compared to periodically stopping and saying, wow, am I doing the right thing? Or, you know, oh my gosh, I need, to, I need to do something dramatic. I need to grow sales by 30% this year. How can I do it? Well, sometimes it feels, while less efficient, it feels emotionally safer to just say, I'm going to do more of the thing I'm already doing. Surely that will work. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. 
So that's one piece of it. But another, honestly, is, uh, is just sometimes we get into habits, we get into ruts, and it doesn't even occur to us. We feel, um, we feel it begins to be reality, right? Like, you know, the, the, the saying they have that, you know, with, um, with, with dog sledding, you know, that if you're not the lead dog, your view never changes. Well, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, the dog in the second place, the third place, the fourth place position, your world is kind of looking at a dog's ass. Like that's sort of what you think the world is. So I, I think sometimes we, we just feel like, oh, this is what life is. And you forget that it can be anything else. Yeah. And I, I'm, I mean, I'm not going to forget the metaphor of the dog's ass for a very long time. So thanks for putting that in there, but well, you guys, um, you guys are Canadian, so I figured you'd, you'd appreciate, you know, some kind of an Iditarod reference. I love that for sure. Is that something that you, just out of curiosity, when you're working as a coach with executives, is that something that gets brought up frequently as being something that folks you work with deal with? Iditarod metaphors all the time. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Um, <laughs> when it comes to people being a little two heads down, you know, I, I think that people tend to fall into um, two opposite extremes. And some of, some of this is a personality matter, but one extreme, which, you know, is not uncommon, is what we just discussed. The other is the people who are constantly stuck in heads up mode. And they are so interested in like, you know, the new thing, the next thing, the big idea. Ah, wait, I could do this. Oh, I could do that. And they're so, you know, I mean, it's great. It's lovely. They're inspired by so many things, but they never pick and they never actually go heads down enough to get things done. So, uh, so, you know, my, my father was a psychiatrist and he used to say that, basically there's really only two problems that psychiatrists solved. He said, you know, it's either that you're screwed too tight and you need to be loosened or you're screwed too loose and you need to be tight. No, did I get that right? You're screwed too loose and you need to be tight or you're screwed too tight and you need to be loosened. And, you know, just one way or the other. And so uh, similarly, I think people tend to be stuck in heads up mode or heads down mode. And as the coach, you just kind of have to be their loving bad guy and be like, I'm so sorry. I know you love the 30 things. Pick one. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. I am thinking about where my screws are set right now and perhaps our dear listener is as well. Thanks for sharing that. <laughs> and sort of along the same lines, talking about execution and, and the, you said it, I think you called it the up, up in your mind or something like that. Um, part of the strategy that you talk about is saying no to things. And we've seen a lot of guidance in both ways. Um, I've read Shonda Rhimes' Year of Yes. And then we also think about saying no. So in order to sort of get ourselves into execution mode, saying no is so important. Do you have any tips for people to know when saying no is the right decision versus a fear-based decision? Yeah, it's, a, it's an important distinction because of course you're, you're pointing to something with your question. If you're saying no because you're, basically scared of your shadow, then obviously that's a problem. And it's, it's good to open up to other possibilities, but for a lot of, a lot of people, um, I would say, I'm, 
going to go out on a limb and say the vast majority of professionals. The problem is the reverse. The problem is that we're saying yes to way too many things. And therefore, you know, our symptoms, our manifesting symptoms are that we feel overwhelmed, we feel stressed out, we feel constantly behind, we feel under pressure, et cetera. And I think, I think that's a lot of people. And I think uh, certainly COVID didn't help with any of that. Uh, as work-life boundaries uh, eroded and we began to take on even more work. Uh, so I think if we're, if we're trying to sort of parse these things, um, you're exactly right that the, the first question is to understand, okay, am I a person who needs to say yes more or am I a person who needs to say no more? Uh, but assuming you are the person who needs to say no more in order to protect your schedule, to have a little, just a little bit of white space in there so you can actually do some productive things. Um, what, uh, what I, in the, the long game, I actually suggest a number of different strategies and I'm happy to go into depth about any of them, but one low-hanging fruit that I will mention, which I think is very easy to do, but can be quite helpful, is at a really basic level, just making sure that we are vigilant about asking for more information. Because so often you will get people reaching out to you and they will be really vague. And sometimes it's because they just don't know better or they're being casual. And sometimes it's because they actually want to pull a fast one on you. <laughs> and they'll be like, oh, hey, hey, Mike, hey, Lisa, hey, Stacy. Um, hey, I'd love to ask you a question. When are you when are you next free for 30 minutes? And the tendency, if you're like a nice person and you're accommodating and you assume, oh, wow, they must have a really important question for me. Oh, wow. OK, yeah, I can hop on the phone. And it turns out, oh, wait, okay, number one, not important at all. Number two, certainly doesn't require all three of you. Number three, they want to sell you term life insurance. You know, like you just feel bamboozled. And so you need to ask the questions to figure out what the heck they want so you can make the determination about whether you even want to do a call or if a call is the best vehicle. That makes a lot of sense. And then once you are able to, to ask those questions, then the execution that you're constantly just spinning in becomes more manageable. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, this, this is a battle that's won at the margins, right? So, you know, it's not, it's not that doing this, let's say, will get you back 10 hours a week, but can it pretty easily get you back one hour a week or an hour and a half a week? I'm willing to bet it probably can. And an hour and a half is enough, actually, that in many cases, it can be the tipping point between feeling, okay, I'm busy and feeling like, oh my God, I'm so overwhelmed. I want to die. Mm -hmm. Yep. It all adds up for sure. Got to have good boundaries on that schedule. All right. Well, on the topic of saying yes to things and saying, being intentional about saying no to things, um, is there ever a time that you suggest it's actually good to say yes to short-term things in spite of the long-term gain? Yeah. So I think, I think that this is an interesting question. Um, so I did a piece for the Harvard Business Review um, a while ago during the, the heat of the pandemic, I guess you could say, talking about what to do if you are essentially biding your time in a job that you don't like or you don't want to be in or something like that. And the truth is, there are plenty of situations where 
you might need to do that, right? Like you have bills to pay, you've got, you know, some, some kind of situation where you know perhaps that this isn't the right job for you or this isn't the right field for you, but in the moment you can't afford to not be doing it, even if it if, if you feel like, oh, okay, this is not really advancing me toward my dreams, but you know, I'm just making do. So lots of us have found ourselves in a situation like that at the time. So that might be uh, an example of what you're talking about that, you know, it's a, it's a short term. Yes. Even if, you know, long-term it doesn't necessarily align. Now, clearly it's suboptimal, right? I mean, we want to be in a situation where everything we're doing in the short term aligns with the long-term, but the reality is it's not always the case. Um, I think in those situations, number one, of course, this is where 20% time comes in. You want to find, even if it's a small amount of time, even if you don't have 20% time, let's call it 5% time, right? In a small way, hopefully you can continue moving forward towards your dream. Because the thing you don't want is to become just like sad and bitter and complacent and be like, well, I guess my dream is dead right? You can keep moving forward, even in small ways. And even if it's going to take longer than you want, that is the definition of playing the long game. But also I think sometimes we have to be gentle with ourselves and just zoom out and say, look, you know, my goal might be to become a professional painter or whatever your goal is, you know, but also my goal is to have financial sustainability. And if this is what it takes for me to achieve that goal and to get there, I might not love it. I wish I could be a professional, you know, full-time painter today rather than 10 years from now, but this is what is necessary. And so if you refract it through a slightly different lens, the day job you're doing that might feel boring or, or what have you is actually part of what is enabling you to make a longer term transition in the direction you want. And do you have any advice for people on how they can stay focused on the long game while ignoring those like bright and shiny short-term distractions? Well, I mean, give, give me an example, if you don't mind, like, is there a particular use case like, you're thinking about? Okay. You want to leave a job, but you have those golden cuffs and it's really hard for you to uh, say goodbye because you know, your bonus is coming in in January. So you're like, Oh, just a couple more months, just a couple more months, even though deep down you're like, uh, I really want to go for this like next thing. Right. Right. Well, you know, I think, I think actually this, this is a place where there's not really, I mean, a, a good part of the long game is that the long game is forgiving over time, right? The point is that you're not, the point is not that you need to do something tomorrow. The point is that you need to do something at some point, you know, in the relative future, right? So in this particular case, if somebody's got a big bonus coming in in January, I mean, I'd stay, <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's take the money, geez. You know, I mean, where the equation is different is if like every day you go into work and you're like, wow, I'm either going to kill myself or I'm going to kill them. You know, like if it's, if yeah, it don't is be there. miserable, <laughs> then leave because your mental well-being is a lot more important than any bonus. But if you're like, eh, it's boring, I don't like it, but okay, I'll get the bonus. You know what? If that bonus is going to give you more freedom later, then part of the long game too is like, okay, you know what? Sometimes it's worth sucking things up because it helps, it helps with the total picture 
And if it can give you the kind of financial uh, security or liberation that you need to be able to expedite things down the road, then that might not be a bad choice. It sounds like at the end of the day, going back to that long-term lens is sort of the home base when it comes to folks who are battling with these tough decisions that, I mean, you, you did a really good job of sort of outlining the value of staying mentally on your feet, metaphorically. Um, but it just sounds like that the long game as a principle, as a guiding light for those who are stuck. Yeah, I think, I think that's right on Mike. I mean, ultimately we have, we have a lot of things coming at us and a lot of decisions to make. And it is useful to have a central organizing principle. And I will suggest that where you want your life to go, the vision you have for your life is not a bad one. Um, because ultimately the way that I define the long game and playing the long game successfully is really just continually asking yourself, what is it that I can do today that will make tomorrow better and easier? What is the thing I can do today that future me will thank me for? <laughs> if you can keep making a series of choices like that, I mean, that you're, you're not going to have a perfect track record, but you are going to have a highly successful track record if you can just keep that lens in mind. It's powerful. It's interesting too. You know, there's, there's this idea of chasing success or this point in time that some people might think of as the long game, but that's not, you're talking more about the vision for your life and, and thinking about ways of making it easier. And when you think about it that way, it sounds like there's a way that having that vision and, and playing the long game can also help us to live in the now. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think, I think you raise a, a really interesting point. Ultimately, I think that the place where most of us will feel the best about our lives and be happiest in the moment is if we feel like there is good alignment between what we're doing today and where we want to go. Um, it creates a lot of tension in us if, you know, to the point that Stacy was raising earlier, uh, you know, if let's say you're caught in some job that you don't really want to be in and you're like, wow, where is this leading? This, this is not leading anywhere I want to go. Um, that creates a kind of cognitive dissonance that can, you know, be frustrating or upsetting. And so that's not to say that we're never going to be in that situation. Sometimes it just turns out that way. But it, what it does mean is that it gives us a framework that if we're just striving to say, all right, I want as much alignment as I can get. And if I feel like I'm out of alignment now, I am going to take the actions that I can, you know, I'm going to control what I can control and slowly move it toward being in greater alignment because that, that takes the cognitive pressure off and you're able to, uh, to really be present and enjoy it because the things you're doing today, you know, will be helpful to you in your long-term quest. Yeah, I love that idea of alignment and how that all helps you to live a more fulfilling life overall. That's fantastic. I'm curious, Dory, for someone who has never really thought about either their life or their career in the strategic long-term way that you are proposing in the book, how would you motivate them to see the value in doing this? I'm thinking about someone who might be 22 or they've been in their first job for a few years and there's just really no 
sense of, of life at sort of a 50,000 foot level, for example? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think in some ways it's easy to overcomplicate it. And I, I like to just go back to first principles. I mean, ultimately for just about anybody, you can say to them, Hey, what do you think is cool? Like, what would be awesome if you got to do what, you know, what, what would be, you know, like who, who are the people that are out there today that you, if you could trade places with them, like that, that would be kind of a cool thing. And people have somebody, you know, it's like to the point of, you know, optimize for interesting. Everybody has things they think are interesting. You ask a room of people and, you know, some people are going to be like, oh, Elon Musk, he's like so rich and he's a cool entrepreneur. And, you know, some people will be like, you know, oh, well, I want to trade places with, uh, you know, Misty Copeland because she's such an incredible ballerina. And, you know, I mean, just like whatever, they're going to have all their things. And so, I would just say, all right, great. Well, let's make that your provisional goal. Okay, it's your provisional goal to be a billionaire. Fantastic. All right. What do you think it would actually take? You know, what does that look like? And you know, how 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 serious are you about it? Like, okay, let's see. And it enables you to to test hypotheses because if you want to be, you know, in the tech world, let's say, you know, you could be you could be uh, 22 years old and say, yeah, yeah, I want to do that. Well, okay, great. Uh, if you want to be Elon Musk, let's try, you know, get you a job at a startup and see what you think. And they might quickly say, oh my God, they're working so many hours. This is ridiculous. I don't want to do it. Okay, fantastic. You can pivot your goal. That's the whole point. We're holding these things lightly at first. And over time, you can refine it. Uh, but it's good to have a hypothesis. And so it just gives us a starting point. Just a really, really solid way of approaching it. it. Makes I love that question of who would you trade places with. I think that's a great way of initiating it. Can I ask a really quick follow up question, Dory? Who who would you trade places with? Oh, nice, nice. I love it. Um, who would I trade places with? I mean, um, Barack Obama. <laughs> I, I I like what I'm doing. I'm not sure there's anybody in the business world that is doing things like so demonstrably different that I would trade places with. But if you could be like, you know, a president or, you know, a, a former president with kind of, you know, moral stature and gravity. And also now he's doing all kinds of cool deals with like Netflix and Spotify. Like that sounds pretty awesome. Totally. That's awesome. Thank you. What are the 20% of your daily activities that yield 80% of your results in your own business and life? So a great, a great question. Uh, hat, hat tip, of course, to the, uh, the Pareto principle, which, uh, which this refers to um, based on the work of the Italian economist Vilfredo Pareto. Um, so, and in the long game, I talk about kind of going through and asking, asking these questions. So I would say that... For me, there's a concept that I talk about in the long game called thinking in waves. And when I, so thinking in waves essentially is understanding that there, there are waves or there are phases of your business in different times when you're doing different activities. So I'm not sure that there is a consistent answer where it's like, oh, you know, yeah, all the time, the 20%, you know, here's the 20% are the most valuable activities. Um, because my activities do shift over time. I would say that 
things like writing books actually are probably the most valuable, not in any way in the financial sense, because you don't really make a lot of money from books, but what, what the function that books serve is they become the spear of intellectual property. And if you are going to develop a, a business where you are you know, known for your thought leadership, where you're known for your ideas, you need to take the time to be creating and, and promulgating those ideas. And it becomes the driver of almost everything else. And, um, you know, essentially the book becomes, quote unquote, the excuse to promote the book. And so uh, I think that that actually creating new content is probably some of the most valuable work that I do. And it's work as well that I feel good about that can only be done by me. You know, if we run the test of like, you know, could your assistant do it? Well, you know, not not really. Um, he's very smart, but <laughs> but nonetheless, you know, writing the books and coming up with the ideas is is really the the thing that only I can do. So it's a good indication of a place to lean in. We have some questions we'd love to ask of everyone that comes on our show, Dory, and I'm going to kick it over to Lisa to kick us off. So our first question is, what is the most fun you've had in your career so far? The most fun I've had in my career? You know, I actually really loved being a freelance journalist years ago because I did all kinds of like crazy stories where I was I was doing like cheap eats columns and eating at like weird restaurants. And um, I did a piece about piano bars and I did a piece about a well-stocked pantry. So I loved the diversity of that. Awesome. Yeah. What's the biggest risk you've ever taken in your career and how did that turn out? So probably in a very literal sense, the biggest risk in my career was starting my own business. Um, and I would say it turned out well. The the asterisk and the caveat here is that what I have come to learn and the gospel that I've come to preach is that starting your own business should not be as risky as it was for me because I did it the wrong way. I quit my job and then I'm like, okay, great. Now I'm going to go find clients. This is a terrible idea. You should find your clients before you quit your job. So I, I advise everyone, do not make starting a business a risky venture. Um, I was an idiot. Oh, humble. I appreciate that. Dory, what is the best piece of career advice you've ever received? The best piece of career advice that I ever received, uh, which has been validated, I guess, literally across the planet over the past 18 months is don't pay for office space. <laughs> I love that. Uh, Amazing. Well, I'm sure that all of our listeners are going to be very eager to learn more about you and your book. So where can people find you? Thank you so much. Well, the, the new book is called The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. And if folks are interested in uh, picking up a copy, of course, you can get it at uh, Indigo and Amazon.ca and all kinds of places. You can also get it outside Canada as well. And uh, additionally, there is a free long game strategic thinking self-assessment. And you can pick that up at doryclark.com slash the long game. Amazing. It has been a lot of fun having this conversation and uh, a great way of celebrating two years of this show being in existence. And Stacy, 
playing such a huge part of making this happen. We just had to have this four-way collaboration come together. And I'm really thankful to, to both of you. And I think I speak on behalf of Lisa as well when I say that. But yes, Dory, this is a great book and we're so happy to help push it out into the world, especially north of the border. Thanks for your time. Thank you all so much. I think we can call it a week then at that for the Career Builders podcast. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Lisa Plain. And I'm Stacey Pollack. We hope you are well. Check out The Long Game, Dory Clark, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. We hope you are well, and we hope you will join us again soon. Bye for now. Hey, dear listener. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Career Builders Podcast. If you love the show and want to help us spread our message further and reach new listeners, would you consider leaving a rating and review of TCBP on Apple Podcasts? Without a doubt, your help would be much appreciated. On behalf of Lisa and myself, thanks, and we'll catch you again. Bye for now.